four days ago, none of us really knew whether Great Britain was going to break up or stay together. And even now, the future organization of Britain seems to be a bit uncertain. For several years, we've been watching a much more severe mess, the situation in Syria. It's very uncertain how that's going to end up. We live in a world that often seems to be uncertain and chaotic. But the Bible tells us nothing is uncertain from God's point of view. He is working out his purposes in all of it. One of our songs says, The tapestry of history tells the story of his grace. And we are in a section of Romans where this truth is being laid out for us. We're being shown some of the jagged peaks and fathomless depths of God and his plans. And this morning we come to Romans chapter 11. In the church Bible, it's page 1138, the large print 1759. Romans 11 is a chapter that deals with God's plan for Israel and us. We're going to look at chapter 11 over two weeks, so today is part one. And as we read this, keep in mind two reasons why this matters to us. Two reasons we should care about Romans chapter 11. First of all, it involves us. What we learn here about God's plans for Israel is bound up with his plans for us. And second, we should care about this chapter because it reveals our God to us. We come to know him better as we pay attention to what he plans and what he does in history. So this chapter is not just here so we can understand the Jews better. It's here so we can understand ourselves better. And most of all, so we can understand God better. So follow along as I read Romans 11 verses 1 to 15. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, They have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. 
And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? This is God's word. And this passage breaks into two sections. In verses 1 to 10, Paul explains Israel's present situation. Then in verses 11 to 15, he begins to explain God's purposes in the present situation. So first of all, Israel's present situation. And to understand the opening words of chapter 11, we have to remember the context. Back in chapter 9, we learned about the reality of God's free choice. He makes his choices according to his own purposes, regardless of anything else. We saw that in the examples of Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Jacob were chosen by God. Ishmael and Esau were not. And the message was, God is sovereign in salvation. Then in chapter 10, Paul highlighted another truth, the truth of human responsibility. In Paul's own day, many of the Jews are rejecting Christ. And Paul said in chapter 10, they are responsible for their actions. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has sent that offer of salvation to the Jews but they have stubbornly resisted it. And they are responsible for that resistance. Paul summed up the Jews' situation at the end of chapter 10 with God's words through Isaiah. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel, by and large, is rejecting God's way of salvation. Salvation through faith in Jesus. That was the situation of the majority of Jews in Paul's day and still today. So in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul asks the most obvious question. Did God reject his people? They have rejected him by rejecting Jesus. So has God turned around and rejected them? Has he given up on rebellious Israel? 
Israel has worked hard to shut the door on God's Messiah. Has God decided to let the door stay shut? That's the question. Paul gives a very definite answer to that question in verse 1. By no means. That's the equivalent to no, written in bold and underlined. If you wonder how Paul can be so sure about that, that, look at his first piece of evidence, also in verse 1. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I'm living proof God has not rejected Israel. You won't find anyone more Jewish than me. I used to be among the disobedient and the obstinate. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says he did all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul shut the door on God's Messiah. But God overcame Paul's resistance. And in the very first verse of this letter to the Romans, Paul describes himself as set apart for the gospel of God. Today, Paul lives to serve the Jesus he once tried to blot out. Paul is exhibit A for the truth that God has not rejected Israel. Paul proves that in the present, God has graciously chosen some from Israel. And Paul wants to show that situation has often been the case in God's dealings with Israel. And to show that, he points back to the days of Elijah. Elijah was a faithful prophet in Israel. We read about him in First and Second Kings. Elijah was faithful, but he served God at a time when most of Israel were living in rebellion against God. They were worshipping a false god, Baal. And at one point, as he was being hounded down by Queen Jezebel, and as he was running for his life, Elijah went into a depression. He was convinced he was alone in Israel. He was convinced God had given up on Israel. He was convinced that his own ministry was pointless in Israel. And Paul quotes his words in verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In Paul's day and in our day, people might look at Israel and think God has given them up as a lost cause. But that's what Elijah thought, and Elijah was wrong. God had chosen some out of that rebellious generation. God points to them as proof he has not rejected Israel. And Paul wants us to see it's the same today. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. 
If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In Elijah's day, God did not hunt high and low until he finally found 7,000 decent people in Israel. No, out of a nation full of disobedient people, God reserved 7,000 for himself. He chose some. And in Paul's day, out of a disobedient and obstinate nation, God chose some. Not because they deserved it. They are remnant chosen by grace. And all of this is more evidence for what we've seen before. God chooses freely. We've seen often enough in this letter, human works cannot earn God's favor. And here we see it's equally true, human works can't shut out God's favor. In Elijah's day and in Paul's day, Israel was disobedient and obstinate. But God is not limited by human rebellion. God can overcome the hardest heart. Paul's an example. His own intense rebellion against God's Messiah could not limit God's ability to save Paul. Here in Romans 11, God's choice of some in Israel is evidence he has not written Israel off. And for us today, the application is not just don't write Israel off, but don't write anyone off. If Paul's stubborn resistance couldn't shut out God's grace, and if Israel in Elijah's day couldn't shut out God's grace, then there's hope for your children or your husband or whoever it is that seems too hard for God to save. We can't say for certain who God will save. But we can say for certain no one is beyond his salvation. God's grace can overcome the hardest heart. You and I have every reason to pray and to witness with hope. Paul has mentioned part of Israel's present situation. Out of a disobedient and obstinate people, God has graciously chosen some. Now we get the rest of the picture in the present. God has justly hardened the rest. Verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written... God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. In verse 7, Paul is referring back to something he said earlier. At the end of chapter 9, he said Israel pursued righteousness by their own way. 
their attempts to keep the Old Testament law. And because they were so intent on their own way, they stumbled over the message about Christ. The message that faith in him is the only way to righteousness. Because the Israelites were so determined to establish their own righteousness, they would not submit to God's way to righteousness. That's what Paul is referring back to in verse 7. Israel sought righteousness earnestly, but they sought it in a rebellious way. And they did not obtain it. We've seen that a small number did. God graciously overcame their rebellion and brought them to faith in Christ. Those people are the elect mentioned in verse 7. But the rest, the majority, were hardened. And the next verse explains it was God who hardened them. Instead of breaking down their rebellion, God confirmed it. He made them unable to respond to the message. That is what verse 8 says. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. In verse 9, Paul quotes from David. In their Old Testament context, the words in verse 9 are words of judgment. And the key word in the quotation is retribution. That means punishment. Israel is rebellious. God is sovereign. He could save all Israel in the present. He has chosen to save some from rebellious Israel and harden the rest. And those who are hardened deserve to be hardened. The hardening comes to them as punishment for their disobedience and obstinacy. God's hardening comes as part of God's eternal purposes and as just punishment on Israel's rebellion. Then having told us what God is doing in the present, Paul now comes to the why question. What is God up to? What are God's purposes in the present situation? And what Paul is going to tell us is this. God has saved a few and hardened the rest of Israel so that salvation will come to the Gentiles. So that Israel will be saved. You can see why we need another week on this. Paul spends the rest of the chapter on it, but he summarizes it in verses 11 to 15. Look first at the beginning of verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul regards Israel's present situation as a stumbling situation. Some believe, but the majority don't. 
And so Paul asks at the beginning of verse 11, are things going to stay that way? Is that as good as it's going to get for Israel? Has Israel stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery? Paul's answer is no. Israel's present stumbling is a step in God's plan. Because she rejected the good news of Jesus, that good news flowed out to the other nations. Israel has stumbled so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. The book of Acts gives the evidence for what Paul says here. We could look at a couple of examples. First of all, Paul and Barnabas, in this example, have been preaching to the Jews in the city of Pisidian Antioch. The first place they go to in that city is the synagogue. But the Jews there heap abuse on them, we're told. Then, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Here's another example from Paul's visit to Corinth. And again in Corinth, he went first to the synagogue. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Here in Romans 11, Paul says, yes, the Jews are responsible for their rejection of the message. And at the same time, God had a greater purpose in hardening them against the message. His purpose was to move me and the other apostles beyond the synagogue and out into the Gentile world. Because the Jews were hardened, salvation has come to the whole world. If the Jews had not been hardened, Jesus the Jew would have been seen as the savior of the Jews only. And you and I wouldn't be here today. But notice verse 11 doesn't stop where I stopped reading a moment ago. There is another step. Salvation came to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Then in verse 12, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Salvation came to the Gentiles, so Israel will receive salvation. Israel's present situation is not her final situation. Verse 12 says her present transgression and loss has enabled the world to receive the riches of salvation in Christ. But Paul looks to a future day when the full inclusion of Israel, literally the fullness of Israel, will bring even greater riches. 
And that raises two questions. What does Paul mean by the fullness of Israel? And what does he mean by greater riches? I think the fullness of Israel refers to a reversal of Israel's present situation. At present, only a small number have found salvation in Christ. The majority are hardened. But Paul points here to a day when the hardened ones will be in the minority. The majority will trust in Christ. And that seems to be confirmed in the passage we'll come to next week, the second half of chapter 11. So if that's what Paul means by fullness, what does he mean by the fullness of Israel bringing greater riches? He doesn't explain it here in verse 12. But look down to verse 15. In verse 15, Paul seems to be talking about the same thing he was talking about in verse 12. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Israel's present situation of rejection has resulted in others being reconciled to God through Christ, people like you and me. But Paul says Israel's future acceptance will mean life from the dead. Life from the dead is what Paul means by greater riches in verse 12. And there are two main possibilities for what Paul means by life from the dead. He could mean spiritual life. In other words, through faith in Christ, the Jews will move from spiritual death to spiritual life. Or, he could mean resurrection life. In other words, when the Jews have turned to Christ, then Christ will return and we'll receive our resurrection bodies, fit for the new heaven and earth. So which is it? I don't know. In his letters, Paul talks about both kinds of life from the dead. He talks about coming alive spiritually at conversion. And he talks about coming alive physically at the return of Christ. So biblically, both possibilities are possible here. They both fit the context pretty well. It is hard to be sure which Paul has in mind. I am more inclined to think he has Christ's return in mind. But before we get confused about that, realize this. Whatever Paul means by life from the dead, what he wants you and me to see is that Israel's present situation is not her final situation. Today, we see only a remnant of Israel trusting in Christ. Just a small portion. In the future, many more Israelites will trust in Christ. And Paul's main point in all this is that God has multiple purposes in his dealings with Israel and the Gentiles. Israel's hardening brought salvation to the Gentiles. So Israel will receive salvation. Look how Paul understands his own work in the light of God's purposes. In verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles. 
Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Just by looking at the earlier verses from Acts, we might have thought Paul had turned against his own people by walking out of the synagogues. But here we see Paul's heart is still for Israel. In chapter 9, he spoke about his great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his people. In chapter 10, he said his heart's desire and prayer was that the Israelites be saved. And here, even as he's delighted to serve God, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, even as he's delighted to see Gentiles coming to Christ, Paul wants those Gentiles who are saved to be making the Jews envious. So they'll be saved too. In fact, it's not just something Paul personally wants. He knows it's part of God's purposes. How would that happen? How might Gentiles accepting Christ make Jews envious? Well, what does the New Testament say to Gentiles like you and me? What does it tell us? It tells us if we belong to Christ, we are true descendants of Abraham. It tells us all God's promises to Abraham's descendants are ours in Christ. It tells us God's Messiah, who is from the Jews, is our Savior. It tells us that in Christ, we are God's dearly loved children, heirs of the glory of God. Can you see how those truths might make Israel envious? At the moment, they make Israel angry. We saw from Acts how Paul was on the receiving end of that anger. But Paul hopes to see that anger turn to envy, which turns to humility, which causes Israel finally to say, Jesus is Lord. At the moment, Israel is like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. Standing outside, arms folded, refusing to come into the party. Why? Because the only way in is by God's grace. Not through human background or human effort, but through trusting in Christ's work. And Israel is still offended by that message of grace. But one day, that anger will turn to envy. The party will look so attractive, Israel will humble herself and come in through faith in Jesus, her Messiah. I realize this may have raised a whole lot of questions for you. And next week, the rest of chapter 11 will fill in more of the picture. But for now, I want to finish with two points to take away from this today. First of all, there is no room in Christ's church 
for arrogance or prejudice against the Jews. There's no room for arrogance or prejudice against anyone. But sometimes Christians have had a confused attitude to the Jewish people. Are they cursed? Are they beyond the pale for God because of what they did to Jesus? The answer is no. They're still part of God's plans. They need the good news about Jesus. And a second point to take away from this. Romans 11 gives us a glimpse behind the curtain of God's purposes for Israel. And his purposes are complex. We see purpose piled on top of purpose. Layer upon layer of God's purposes. Now none of us get a similar glimpse of God's detailed purposes for us as individuals. We're not going to get that the way we get it for Israel here. But what we see in Romans 11 should warn us as individuals. We are never going to figure out all that God is doing in our situation. Not in this life. God is working out layer upon layer of his purposes in our lives. And in the lives of our family and friends. Let's never assume we've figured out all that God's doing. Let's not assume our plan is better for our situation. We simply don't know all that God's doing. We don't know all that he plans to do with our circumstances. His dealings with Israel should teach us that. So let's trust his wisdom and his power. The tapestry of history tells the story of his grace. That will prove true for Israel and for you. The completed course of our lives will show his grace. And we have his grace today. We are reconciled to God through Christ already. So let's praise God for that present grace. And let's share the good news of his grace with others, Jew and Gentile. We're going to close by singing Grace Unmeasured and then hear the call of the kingdom.